Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. I think one of the most fascinating and interesting and potentially scary aspects of where we're at in this psychedelic revolution, renaissance, revival, whatever we want to call it right now, is the law. And we really don't know what's going to happen. There are so many variables in what is happening right now, whether this is medical, whether it is spiritual or a church focus, whether it is healing or whether it is uh, an opportunity to meet God. I think there are so many interesting aspects just to this topic alone that today's episode is just barely scratching the surface. I invited Robert Rush on the podcast to talk a little bit about the risks that practitioners are taking on when they move into this space, some of the potential uh, trouble that they may find themselves in. And I think Robert does his best to give practitioners some helpful advice when it comes to reducing some of the risk and what might be a really good option that should somebody come knocking at your door. We kind of round out the podcast with some current psychedelic policy and where he sees things going. So without any further ado, I want to introduce you to Robert Rush, who is an attorney with almost 20 years of experience representing a wide variety of clients. Before focusing his practice on psychedelic law, Robert represented corporate clients in antitrust and complex commercial litigation. In 2015, wanting to pursue a different direction, Robert transitioned his practice to representing cannabis and hemp clients. Based out of Denver, Colorado, with the passage of the Natural Medicines Health Act legalizing several psychedelics, Robert has been working with established therapists looking to enter into psychedelic therapy, entrepreneurs, healing centers, religious practitioners, and nonprofit organizations. Robert is legal director and general counsel to the Colorado Association for Psychedelic Synergy and the chair of the Psychedelic Law Subcommittee of the New York City Bar Association. He also advocates for the reform of psychedelic laws throughout the country. Without any further ado, I'd love to introduce you to Robert Rush. Robert, thanks for joining us at the Psychedelic IQ podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. First of all, as we always do, just tell us uh, maybe a little bit about yourself. What's your origin story and uh, what do you do today? Uh, sure. Um, graduate of the uh, University of Colorado Boulder uh, undergrad and the University of Colorado Law School. Uh, after law school, I went into a work for a firm uh, doing uh, complex commercial litigation uh, for about a decade. Um, did not find it really to be my passion. Um, um, 2015, I, uh, I began practicing in cannabis law and uh, developing a cannabis uh, law practice. Um, after that, I um, started to add in the, uh, gosh, sorry, can I start over or, or just keep going or, uh, yeah. 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 Um, but um, uh, added in uh, psychedelic uh, practice then uh, as the psychedelic movement began to grow and continues to grow. Um, and I've been developing a client base, working with different clients in various areas of uh, psychedelics, uh, entrepreneurs and uh, startups. And that's been my focus. Tell me what you see as some of the similarities or even differences between what was happening in cannabis law in like 2015 and now what is happening in psychedelic law here in the last couple of years? Well, first off, I'd say that psychedelic law compared to cannabis law, we thought things changed quickly with cannabis law and evolved quickly. 
um, psychedelic laws in many ways, like cannabis law and steroids. Uh, it is, um, you know, it's uh, unbelievably how quick things are changing regarding psychedelics and the uh, reform that's occurring. I, I would have never thought we would have had something like Colorado's Natural Medicine Health Act. Um, passed, um, yeah, as, as quickly as it did and where we're at regarding, uh, regarding the law there. It's, it, there's a lot of similarities. There's, there tends to be a, a trend among some people that they're looking at this as we're going to, uh, leverage, um, medicalization first, uh, getting it legalized, uh, for medical uses and then looking at it beyond that for, spiritual or for personal use, recreational use, um, if you want to refer to it as that. Um, and it's kind of paralleling uh, cannabis with sentiment like that. Uh, so those, those are the parallels I see. As for the actual substances, I personally don't view their use to be that that similar psychedelics. You know, are used in a totally different way. They're not used on a you know, a daily basis, like many people use cannabis or in a, you know, such a recreational way. They're, you know, just the, the nature of the substances kind of um, create differences between them. And sometimes there's a a lot of uh, parallels they're trying to make between cannabis and psychedelics that don't really work in a regulatory framework um, that they're trying to structure it along the same way. Like Colorado is using the Department of Revenue based upon their experience with cannabis. And I don't know if it's going to play out in quite the same way. Um, also, a lot of the people looking to get into it, um, I don't think they really realize how sort of limited the consumption is compared to cannabis. For cannabis, you have an ongoing supply constantly that people want. With psychedelics, um, people might use it, you know, uh, microdosing, they might use somewhat, but uh, even that is, you know, it's a small amount. It's the, the profit centers that a lot of people, I think, perceive that they're going to recognize aren't really uh, quite what they're going to be. Um, and also, too, with mushrooms, um, a lot of the people look at it from a scarcity-based perspective that I think is incorrect because you know truth is people could grow a lifetime's worth of mushrooms for fifty dollars in the closet. <laughs> yeah, the I think the the financial aspects of this, the commercialization aspect of this are so considerably different uh, between the two uh kind of frameworks that we're looking at. You know, I think we we're gonna come back in a little bit to maybe some more policy questions. I'm interested to get some of your thoughts there. But I'd really like to start with some of the the meat of our conversation regarding risks, specifically risks for uh, practitioners. And I think that maybe even looking at practitioners in a couple of different ways, um, we there are some practitioners like if we look at ketamine, uh, we have people legally serving ketamine in clinics. Uh, we have underground practitioners, and then maybe even clergy. And I don't know. If there's any of those that you like to focus on in your practice or if you're comfortable talking about, but what would you say some of the biggest risks are that practitioners are are bound to face? Well, generally, I break down risk analysis into several different parts. First thing I look at is criminal risk uh, because it obviously has the most potential impact to a practitioner uh, where Unlike the other risks, this one will actually, you know, can take away your freedom. And some of the penalties for psychedelics, uh, being that they're in most states are uh, felonies for just simple possession, uh, it, it really does create a whole different level of risk for a practitioner that most other spaces don't. So I think you really you have to look at criminal risk and try to mitigate criminal risk to the greatest degree possible and take a serious recognition of potential um, criminal risks that are out there. There's Because there hasn't been very much prosecution and 
it's been the DEA has been kind of staying hands off for the most part, and most local law enforcement's been staying hands off. Surprisingly, um, it's shocking coming from the days of you know, the the 1990s. What it looked like with enforcement, it's just I, I cannot imagine if we had people out and open back then. Um, as they are now, it would have been an entirely different sort of situation. Uh, but that I think, though, people oftentimes, too, can become rather complacent and don't recognize that there is the potential for criminal prosecution still. And they have to be cognizant of that. They have to recognize the risk, um, decide what level of risk tolerance they're really comfortable with with their practice. Um, and then put in as many protections as possible to mitigate criminal risk uh, as possible. Um, the second thing I always look at is civil risk next, uh, which they're you're providing the people a controlled substance or maybe not providing to them optimally, but facilitating them using a controlled substance uh, that's it, it's not it hasn't been approved for. Uh, treatment of any disease. So you're really looking at a high degree of potential liability uh, because you know, people are taking it, they have an adverse reaction to it. It's it's not an easy argument to win um, that you did not engage in some degree of negligence by you know, providing or facilitating these substances to someone. Um, it's a pretty easy argument for a um, personal injury attorney to make. Next, I'd say professional risk also. Um, professional risk, you have the uh, potential for the loss of license, uh, and uh, you don't find that in you know other spaces where you're looking at um, usually. So there's that added uh, risk. And then reputational risk, too. These substances are living in our own echo chamber here. We become very comfortable with them, but we forget that uh, the broad society hasn't accepted these substances the way we do. Um, and professionally, uh, reputation-wise, you are a potential risk, too. So I think it's important that you recognize the risk and try to manage them to the greatest degree possible. Tell me, uh, you mentioned, I think you started with criminal, and you mentioned you know protections that one can take. Is there really anything that a practitioner can do to protect themselves? Uh, there are. Part of it comes down to what the type of practice is and how closely they're associated with the administration of psychedelics. Uh, optimally, the practitioner should not be involved with the actual administration of psychedelics. Um, working as a facilitator at most but even working as a facilitator can really lead to um, potential problems, especially regarding your license, um, because it's it comes down to a question of, you know, are you acting within the bounds of competency and are you observing the duty of care that needs to be exercised regarding the patient? Uh, and um, you know, the bounds of competency, there's questions because, like I said, these are not federally approved drugs. They're, you know, they're Schedule One substances typically. And so that really, it makes it a difficult argument that you are acting within the bounds of competency. Now, I would say there's things like training, certifications. Granted, they're not recognized by the states for the most part, with the exception of Oregon and Colorado will in the future will have the standards for um, certification. But it's um, it, it comes down to trying to mitigate as much of the risk as possible by trying to create the best practices possible also. Um, and there's a whole host of things that people need to do to try to mitigate their risk. Um, for one, I would say it would be best not to be the person who's actually providing the substance to a person. That is, um, that's problematic from a legal uh, perspective. It also comes down to issues with then 
you're you're literally providing the controlled substance. You're distributing a controlled substance. And also, too, you have to verify what the substance is, its purity, uh, making sure people, you know, are taking what they think they're taking, which may not, you know, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, you know, as you're because we don't have clear chains of supply with these things. We we don't have laboratories that can test these things for the most part. And so the you know the gray market and the you know the illicit market really does place people at risk. Um, beyond that, there's um, you know people need to develop uh, protocols and procedures in place, harm reduction protocols um, in place to manage you know the the process of psychedelic therapy for everybody. Um, the the exception to this would be um, ketamine. Because ketamine, you do have a substance that is uh, escatamine is approved by the FDA and can be uh, provided as a, a therapeutic um, drug. And then you have the off-label use that's being IV ketamine um, or oral ketamine that's being provided, which is you know a, a legal route. And the ketamine route does provide the least amount of potential risk to a practitioner. I'm curious. I I had a individual that was working closely with legislation. Uh, this has probably been two or three years ago who said to me, well, it's not illegal to ingest the substance. It's illegal to transport, possess, or sell. Is that, would you agree with that statement? And maybe we need to also qualify that if we're talking about maybe federally, because obviously states, state by state is going to be different for a lot of folks. But uh, is there any truth to the, the say, the phrase that I just repeated? I would, I, I don't know if I would put a great deal of um, a stock in that sort of notion. I would look more. Was the person, if the person was prescribed it by um, a practitioner, by a person who has a, um, a, who's registered with the DEA and is authorized to prescribe controlled substances, um, then the person could take it. But I, uh, it's, it's strange that they, you know, the notion that, you know, it's okay to take it, you know, it would seem to me you're possessing it at some point during that process. Um, if you're taking it, I'm on board with that part. But if you're, if we're going to look at maybe a an underground practitioner, that uh, let's say an underground practitioner is guiding a session, the underground practitioner is not in possession of the substance, and maybe the the individual brings their own substance to uh, a session. At what point is that underground practitioner uh, at risk or are they at risk for simply sitting with somebody who is bringing their own controlled substance to a session? They are at much lower risk than if they were providing it to them, obviously. But one of the aspects of law that hasn't been really enforced against psychedelic practitioners, but is of concern to some attorneys out there that it could be, is there's drug house laws that are a relic of the um, crack epidemic, where they created laws that if you provide a space for the consumption of illegal drugs, um, you are in violation of the statute, and it has rather draconian penalties to it. And the more involvement you have and the more intrinsically you're involved with the consumption, the greater the risk is. So you do have that aspect of it that there is potential liability with that. Uh, also, too, it depends on the individual state's law, too, because there may be you know, some sort of you know, strange nuance in state law where you know, there's people who are using, you know, there's people are using, you know, an opiate with somebody else and then they call 911 when the person overdoses and then they end up charged um, 
under uh, some sort of various state law, but I couldn't speak to every individual state law, but it's something that people should be cognizant of. I wanted to ask you a question about that. I know that we can't look at every state statute, but tell me your opinion on Good Samaritan laws. I think they're a great thing. Uh, I think they should be. Uh, I think it's an abomination that anywhere in this country that somebody who's trying to save the life of somebody else um, and trying to get them access to treatment with an overdose should face any sort of criminal liability. Um, that's just a terrible paradigm. I mean, you're, it just it costs lives simply put. So, um, I, it, it, Would you say that if... Uh Tell me, tell me how the, a good Samaritan law might intersect with an underground psychedelic practitioner. Well, hopefully that, you know, it, it doesn't come up. Hopefully you have good practices in place. You've screened people well, uh, evaluated the appropriateness of psychedelic treatment for them and, um, you know, have practices in place that prevent it. And, but, uh, if there is some sort of serious adverse event, um, hopefully the Good Samaritan law uh, protects them and, you know, protects them from any sort of criminal liability. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to depend a lot, too, on the individual practitioner, their policies, how they operate. If they appear to, you know, working with a large group of people with poor structures in place that appear to be a real threat to the public's health, it's, I think you're going to find it more likely that you're going to be prosecuted. Um, and it also too comes down to a huge difference between um, the individual jurisdiction you're in and in that the individual jurisdiction you're in down to the local level, because you, you look at a state like Colorado, you'll where in Boulder, Denver, you're going to Aspen, you're going to have a very different sort of political environment than, um, you know, a, a small agricultural town on the plains in eastern Colorado that's very conservative. I think you're going to find a much more of an appetite to prosecute in those type of places rather than, you know, a, a more progressive, you know, liberal sort of environment. And that's why if you're planning where to set up a practice, too, you really have to pick your location and look at what the politics are of that individual location. If you aren't protected under state law, it sounds odd to say, but if you're if you're going to be violating the law in some ways, you should violate the law in the place where you're least likely to be prosecuted or least aggressively prosecuted. Not that I'm advising anybody to violate the law. That would be a good um, a spot to just throw into that this is the discussions here are for educational purposes. And uh, you really shouldn't rely on this as legal advice. And if you have any questions, you should contact an attorney who uh, has a knowledge of psychedelic law and uh, get advice from them. Yeah, perfect. I want to take a, just a second and maybe put criminal penalties on a shelf. Not that we can make them go away, but if we just shelf those for a moment, I wonder if you could discuss some of the the aspects of civil risk and what a practitioner could do to avoid some of their own civil risks. Sure. The um, the first thing I would say they should do is they they need to really you know identify. They need to construct a good practice it's basically many of the underlying you know requirements for operating any sort of therapeutic practice um that they you know you identify you know the you explain to the client you need to have informed consent from the client and to have informed from the consent of the client you really need to explain the entire therapeutic process use of psychedelics and you need to explain to them and you can't you know, attempt to, you know, sugarcoat anything, either what the actual risk of the substances are. And there are risks for certain people with these substances. I think we have to acknowledge that a lot of people really kind of approach this, that mushrooms have a very low risk of toxicity with them, but you, but it's not, 
but the risk of harm is not zero. You have to look at what the potential physical risks are, what the physical health of the client is before administering a psychedelic, any underlying medical conditions, are there any contradictions uh, based upon medication that the person's using. Um, you know, adequate screening and medical supervision are essential um, to minimize the risk and adverse reactions or complications. Uh, a substance like Ibogaine, it's very important that you consider the cardiac health of the patient. Um, and even using the term patient's problematic. Um, Oregon, they, they decided that they had to move away from any sort of notion that this is a medical patient relationship. And it's actually under the law, it's viewed as a facilitation for adult use, even though it's clearly for therapeutic benefits. Um, that's something two people should do. They should move away from any sort of a notion that this is a medical treatment and they are providing only harm reduction facilitation services that um, are solely there to design to increase the safety of the experience. Um, that they're not providing medical care. Also, something like uh, psilocybin, you can, if the person's taking lithium, you can have a reaction. And uh, if they're on any sort of an SSRI or SNRI uh, and they're taking uh, and they use uh, ayahuasca, there's a risk of serotonin syndrome. So, those things like you really need to have the person who's facilitating very well versed in any potential physical interactions and also psychological risk too with you know if you have a person who has uh you know a certain psychiatric conditions do not lend themselves to uh to psychedelics and people have to be made aware too that they could have anxiety they could have panic they could have you know trauma reactivation um as a result of the psychedelic therapy and you know these are potential outcomes, but explaining that to them, making sure everything has been fully explained to them, and then every facilitator too also needs to have um, certain documentation in place. In my opinion, um, they really need to have uh, certain um, contracts in place and um, agreements in place that the uh, that the client is going to, uh, you know, be provided with needs to read and sign. Tell me a little bit more about uh, like when you talk about documents and and contracts. If if obviously we're working in a ketamine clinic and it's and it's completely legal, obviously those uh, would stand up in a court of law. But if I let me rephrase that. If a facilitator <laughs> uh, signs an agreement with a client and they're entering into um, sort of a harm reduction agreement and they're going to bring substances and I'm going to watch them ingest these substances and make sure that they uh, do not fall into any unnecessary harm. Is that agreement, uh, will it stand in court knowing that what we're doing is potentially something not uh, federally legal? There is the potential that they'll try to get it voided on the grounds of illegality. Um, contracts, generally, if they're considered illegal by a court, um, they will... Um, they will be considered um, unenforceable um, and void. So there is there is questions there, and some of it comes down to also the jurisdiction. Um, I that's it's if you're if you're practicing in jurisdictions that have had no reform whatsoever, I think you're at greater risk than um, a the great thing I see about Colorado is we've structured it where we have created a system where we have not only a medical system that's going to be coming, although medical is a problematic word, but a structured therapy system. And there's also the kind of decriminalized aspect of it where we're going to have spiritual use of facilitators who are not 
in that structured therapeutic system. And then one of the really great things they've done in Colorado is they actually added language in SB 23290 that codifies that contracts for psychedelic services are enforceable um, and contracts around psychedelics are enforceable. So it's a great thing. In other jurisdictions, they're going to try to argue that the contract isn't. Typically, you can put in a clause waiving an illegality defense, whether that'll stand up or not. Um, you know, it also depends on the um, the court and the jurisdiction. Um, so those are kind of the some of the lawyer type of you know um, pedantic type of things uh, we try to do to maintain uh, enforceability. Yeah. Maybe shift just a little bit for me, and uh, I'd like to get any kind of thoughts around specifically spiritual practitioners and and or psychedelic. We're seeing a lot of news about psychedelic churches and or um, are there any specific things about retreat centers that you would mention? The churches. It's it's a tough area. The churches when you're you're crossing over to into a is it is it a church or is it for therapy? Because the DEA has especially with their you know their take on like the Soul Quest um matter, the ayahuasca church in Florida, um that had uh problems with uh you know Adverse reactions with uh, people, and uh, and then the DEA was um, very hard on the fact that they did they were crossing over the line between providing a medical benefit uh, and a healing benefit as opposed to a strictly religious benefit, which it seems strange for anybody who's familiar with religion is that one of the big things you typically find in religious practices in um, most Christian churches, you're going to hear stories about people being miraculously healed. And, you know, there's, there's, they have no problem with them claiming a medical benefit, but with psychedelics, they have to say that, you know, there is no medical benefit. This is strictly spiritual. Um, Also another problem they have is monotheism that they basically say if you're going to be a spiritual practitioner, you can't really have any other religion other than that one. Um, even though there's nowhere I've seen in the Constitution that requires that we, um, you know, religion's limited to a monotheistic approach. Um, so those are the type of things. People are involved with the church aspect of it. I would ask them to really contemplate whether this is really a spiritual use or whether they're trying to find some sort of a workaround. Um, and, you know, I, I really prefer that the spiritual stays spiritual and the therapeutic stays therapeutic um, if they're going to recognize them as, you know, if they're going to argue that they're two separate things until we can come to a point where the DEA gets a clue and, you know, recognizes that we, you know, that this isn't as simply defined as that. You know, I know that there is adjudicated law at the Supreme Court right now when we talk about a couple of ayahuasca churches that have pretty deep and historic lineages coming from South America, and they're pretty well established. I don't know. To my knowledge, there's not been any adjudication yet of like a mushroom church at the Supreme Court level. So we don't really have much precedent for a lot of the interest in mushroom uh, churches yet. Is that uh, your understanding as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The um, the mushroom churches, it's all, it's all a uh, very uncertain area. And with this court that we have, it's really uncertain. Um, we have a court that is very strongly in favor of religious freedom and um, the rights of churches and the rights of practitioners, but we haven't seen whether that extends beyond a Judeo-Christian context. 
And does it extend to uh, also the use of uh, psilocybin? I, I don't know. I don't think anybody can really say what this court will do regarding that. Um, I'm definitely hopeful that they will go with an expansive, broad religious interpretation. Um, but I don't think it's it's certain by any stretch of the imagination. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, though, is if you, um, you know, there is a, you know, there's a considerable number of people, Jewish congregations that are using psychedelics and are using psilocybin and also using DMT. And they're, you know, they argue that there's historical context for this and that um, especially more so the, I don't know how much the psilocybin, but with the DMT, there's arguments that Syrian rue contains uh, DMT-like compounds and um, there's a lineage that goes back there. They can, you know, establish whether that all plays out, I don't know, but I would, I would think that you know, if you have you know Orthodox Jews coming to argue in front of the Supreme Court that this is part of the religious practice, it may be more palatable for them than you know um, a group of hippies. Not to denigrate <laughs> people, or not to denigrate the people who are using psychedelics. I mean, I love hippies, so <laughs> I'm sure that there's a lot of hippies cheering for you right now, like. <laughs> Um, what about healing centers? Do healing centers face face any special risks under the law? They they do. They face the they face the risk of the uh, crack house statute. Um, they they could also um, for recommending the services they could um, you could see they could try to structure a conspiracy case um, that they're aiding and betting a lot. Un- an unlawful act. Uh, you could even, they could even, if they really went for it, maybe try to construct some sort of a uh, RICO racketeering organized crime type of prosecution. Um, I don't know how likely those things are. We haven't been seeing very much, you know, action that way. And it's been fairly hands off by law enforcement in the courts. And hopefully it stays that way, but it's not guaranteed. Um, the biggest thing where most of these types of litigation comes from and the greatest risk, um, both criminal and civil, is usually it ends up with either somebody's disgruntled uh, with their experience. They had a bad experience. It, um, it didn't go the way they were, thought it should. They, you know, afterwards they weren't happy or else somebody who's associated with them, one of their uh, friends, relatives, spouses who are upset about the um, sometimes dramatic change that these people go through. I heard of a story of a facilitator um, who was had the police show up at their house because the person had gone through a ceremony and come to the realization that they were not happy in their marriage and it was not a good situation for them anymore and they wanted to get divorced. And the you know, soon to be ex-spouse contacted the state police and said, this person's, you know, giving drugs to people and facilitating. So um, it's usually, it's like most, it's like most drug prosecutions. Usually they come from somebody providing a tip to the police. Unfortunately, it's usually not, you know, just um, diehard police. Let's take that. Let's take that uh, example that you just gave. And well, let's go one more step further. So somebody comes and knocks on your door as a practitioner that is operating uh, from an underground perspective as an attorney. I don't know if you're willing to give somebody advice uh, for educational purposes only. If somebody knocks on your door, what happens next? What do you what would you recommend to somebody? Oh, I'm going to steal a quote from. Another attorney, there's there's a couple of attorneys who have a uh, a line out there. They're called the Pop Brothers at Law, and they're they're regarding cannabis and traffic stops. It's themed from, but their whole take is always shut the fuck up. And that would be basically would be my advice for the most part. Um, you know, to be you know coarse about it, but um, don't talk to the police. Uh, Get an attorney and use your attorney to talk to the police. Um, you're 
probably not going to help your case, uh, especially if, if you and anything you admit to the police is going to be used against you. And the police will oftentimes cage in terms of, you know, if you tell me what's going on, I can help you so that, you know, you'll get in less trouble or sit along the lines like that. And that is they're not there to help you. Uh, they're there to, you know, arrest people. So um, don't give them anything to work with. Uh, also, too, don't, you know, don't put things out there and don't, you know, put things in writing, put things in pictures that can be evidence against you. I see so many people that post pictures of their monotubs from their house and, you know, they don't realize that, you know, that's that's a piece of evidence to be prosecuted. And you're probably not going to be, but if you happen to be, that's all there. Um, lots of times, too, it comes down to something that they're not expecting, that, you know, somehow somebody reports them that they're, you know, growing their monotub or they're, um, you know, something happens that, you know, brings the police into their lives in a situation in their house for something unrelated, and then it gets tied up with that. So, um, yeah, don't. Don't help the police by putting, you know, incriminating evidence all over social media. I think all great advice. Uh, you know, is there anything maybe before we shift over to talking about some some policy stuff? Is there anything that you would want to share about risks and you know potential trouble and and just advice for practitioners that are that might be working in the space? Really, do things as much as you can. Um, you know, uh, as properly as you can. If you have a staff, train your staff. Make sure that your staff understands also some of the just general medical sort of rules that apply for a medical practice, like confidentiality, um, keeping the person's information confidential, especially if you're in a ketamine practice, which is a medical practice. Um, make sure that, you know, you have, you know, a staff that's trained, um, make sure that you have, you know, policy set up, framework in place. Understand the, you know, working with the patient too. The after they've received the, um, the you know, substance that you're, you have the plans in place for follow up afterwards, integration. Um, you know, and it may be a long term situation too that you need to, um, you know, structure something for that. You know, you know, ketamine is you you're going to be multiple doses over, you know, weeks time often and and then following up with maintenance um doses. Um things like that. They really need to also to um um you know really explore all the risks, explain psychedelic therapy to the people, um, make sure that they really understand the risk and the benefits. Um and also too you should give them alternatives and options to psychedelic treatment. You know, tell them there may be other things that may work for them also and, you know, that are not psychedelics. Uh, recognizing the client's um, autonomy to make informed decisions and encouraging the clients to ask questions, express concerns, um, and uh, participate in treatment decisions. Um, and then also, too, one of the things that should not need to be said uh, but really does is that maintaining a professional relationship with the um, client, because I have heard too many horror stories where boundaries and lines are crossed between a rogue practitioner and a client. And, um, you know, there should never be a situation where there's any sort of a you know, intimate relationship with the client, obviously. Um, also, to financial relationships, too. Um, people are in very vulnerable states. They can be subject to being exploited easily. And that's why we have a special responsibility and obligation with working with these substances, um, because people are really trusting themselves and putting themselves um, in potential jeopardy. So we need to really work with the highest level of ethics and professionalism with any of this um, and then recognizing two cultural differences that may exist too um, and you know making sure that you're the right person to be working with someone 
Yeah. All really, really good advice. Thank you. Let's shift gears and move over sort of into the policy area. And one question that I, before we like dive into maybe the current policy and enforcement stuff, I'm curious if you think that generally, and just in your professional opinion, there obviously there's no legal advice in this question. Do you think that we have crossed a point where we can't go backwards? Like, are we, have we made enough progress with psychedelics that it's going to be really hard to go in reverse? Uh, the, is the toothpaste out of the tube question? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the toothpaste yeah. out of the tube. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I hope so. I would like to think so. I'm not a hundred percent certain on that. Um, I, if we, you know, we could have some sort of really horrendous thing happen if a person were on, you know, a person was on Mike, there was on mushrooms and, you know, committed some sort of horrible, you know, atrocity mass shooting or something like that. That could completely shift the dialogue a lot. And it's, that's another reason why it's important that we make sure that we, you know, that, you know, people who are, it's not an appropriate substance for trying to keep them away from, and also to really education. So we need to um, hammer education, just public education about psychedelics and, um, you know, all the, you know, the potential risk and benefits and being honest and open about them. Um, because, I mean, everybody I know in this space, nobody wants anybody to get hurt, um, first and foremost. And most of the people I know are, you know, very compassionate, kind people. Um, and first and foremost, make sure nobody gets hurt. And, but it would really, it worries me too that, you know, we, we will be having a presidential election coming up. Um, I don't know how that's going to switch things. We could we could see a dramatic shift in policy. Um, yeah, you know, we get somebody who wants to go back to the law and order days, who uh, believes that we should be cracking down on this uh, at the federal level, uh, coming after people. Um, it, it could be a dramatically different situation, and people have put themselves out in public so much now that it's going to be shooting fish in a barrel. Um, the only thing is there's, there's, there's a lot of fish out there. So um, hopefully that provides some degree of protection. Um, I don't, I don't think it's going to change, but you know, I, uh, you know, um, the jury's still out on that one. Tell me, I just thought of something based on what you just said. What is the, you know, or are there risks of practitioners uh, posting on social media and you know content that is out on the internet right now. Risk regard, I yeah, I believe there is you know potential criminal risk out there. The odds of it happening, I being prosecuted, are it comes down to really um, the the local jurisdiction, how in your face you are. Uh, you know, whether there's been any problems from your practice, if you, you know, if you're in a, you know, a small conservative jurisdiction, a small town, and you are openly advertising all over the place what you're doing, I could potentially see it coming back to, um, you know, bite you. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be in a small town in Alabama that's got a population of a thousand people openly distributing flyers saying I provide psilocybin facilitation. I don't think that would be a wise move. Yeah. All right. Well, tell me, uh, tell me your thoughts being, having been in this now for seven years uh, and seeing cannabis come up through the, the law books in many ways, what do you see trends right now in psychedelic policy and enforcement? I think we're going to continue seeing states very much so moving on the medical approach. I've been working a lot with um, organizations in New York State on trying to reform the law there. And I've gotten a good window into the process behind the scenes. And it's very much so the preference amongst all the legislators is really for a medical model. And 
the uh, in a medical model that also recognizes the benefit the substances provide to um, veterans and first responders. Uh, because, I mean, veterans and first responders carry so much trauma, and there's not really very many effective treatment paradigms for them out there, and they suffer. And it's much easier for politically for, um, like, New York's um, the, the Burke Bill, which was a therapeutic approach, um, it was very much a geared towards the first responders and veterans uh, were emphasized in it. And it got some bipartisan support and it ended up with 40 sponsors, I believe it was, at the end of the legislative session. And it's where there was a much broader decriminalization bill um, that really got much less traction. So I think we're going to see a lot more of the medical type of bills and we're going to see an incremental approach where you're going to see states looking at different, um, you know, psilocybin probably first and then also um you know, MDMA, when it becomes, you know, a uh, FDA-approved drug, um, will be interesting. Also, also that's going to open up, I think, a lot of, you know, um, a lot of perception and open up a, a lot of doors to further investigation into what these substances can do. It's it's hard to say no to a, uh, to a veteran or a firefighter who's suffering even if you're conservative. What are your thoughts on legalization versus decriminalization now looking in hindsight at what happened with cannabis? I'm in favor of legalization for a large, one large reason that is that decriminalization is not legalization. Um, there is still a potential for arrest and, uh, and it is a, um, it's it's the discretion usually that it's been it's been made to be the lowest priority on the police, um, you know, importance and lowest priority doesn't mean no priority and they and there still can be prosecutions um, and uh, and if so at the state level usually then you're looking at some sort of a felony for the prosecution so I prefer. You know, legalization where, you know, even for, for personal use, I would prefer, prefer to be legalized at a state level, which is where the criminal law comes from, rather than at a local level. Because local, you know, local community cannot exempt themselves from state law um, regarding like criminal penalties. Uh, so it just, I just feel much more comfortable when it's legalized at a state level. Now, whether it should be commercialized and how much commercialization there should be, that's a completely different question. Um, and I just, I think, you know, there's huge amounts of promise with these substances, huge amount of benefits that we're going to see. Um, the question is, I don't know how a lot of them are really going to be monetized by the traditional pharmaceutical model. Because it's a model that's based upon not really curing illness, but uh, treating illness chronically and on an ongoing basis where you you get a patented drug that people have to take for, you know, for many years. And that's where you make your money at. And something that actually cures a disease, uh, you know, with you look at the uh, dramatic results with MAPS and MDMA. Uh, you know, three doses and you're ending up with 67% of the people no longer being considered uh, to have, you know, PTSD mm. under the DSM. Um, I don't know how you market something like that, um, you know, pricing wise, and you're either going to have something that's going to be prohibitively expensive that's only accessible by a few Um you know, is that is that going to be the option there? Um, or I don't know how you're going to structure it so that it's made available to everybody. But um, it, these are questions we can wrestle with. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting next like four to five years, I think, between, like you said, the one administration uh, potentially coming to an end being and swapping out for a new administration. I think we have a really interesting uh overbalance in the court system right now. But to your point earlier, there is a court that really honors religious freedom. 
but that same court doesn't particularly love the use of uh, controlled substances. So where these two things begin to intersect, uh, I think will be very, very interesting. And the court also, too, purports to be very much in favor of states' rights and a limited federal government. So will that mean that they, you know, they recognize that there is a, you know, the right for the state to make this decision? Uh, With cannabis, when, you know, medical cannabis uh, came, it was legalized and it was put in front of the court. uh, It was the, uh, it was the most liberal people on the court who voted against the uh, state's rights to use or to determine cannabis legalization. So, um, you know, it, it's strange when, you know, off, you know, there's a weird dissonance and dichotomy between the conservative anti-drug, strong law enforcement, but then, you know, states' rights also. It's going to be an interesting ride coming up, I think. I agree with you. Well, tell me what it is that uh, you're working on. Anything exciting that uh, is coming down the pipe for you? Working on trying to help businesses get going in Colorado, build, uh, you know, um, build uh, smart um, businesses that will succeed with the as we determine what the regulations are going to be and how things are going to roll out in Colorado, um, and. Um, Working with uh, nonprofit groups and advocacy, which is very exciting. Um, you know, I, I love helping to try to um, affect change in any way. And um, also, too, uh, starting up a um, consulting company that's going to be working and providing um, technical and um, chemical engineering type of assistance with uh, psychedelic uh, industry and um, regarding analytical chemistry, research chemistry, um, um, and compliance, regulatory um, advice, things like that. Right. Very cool. Well, we're going to drop into the speed round here to wrap us up. Uh, I'm going to ask you four questions and just tell me whatever comes to your mind first. First one is, uh, why do you do the work that you do? Because I've seen what opiates can do. And I've seen the impact of it. And I believe that opiates, a large part of our addictions are based upon trauma and the trauma we carry. And I think psychedelics provide us the greatest possibility to treat that trauma that so many people are suffering from and um, hopefully save families. Beautiful. Best advice you would give someone who is kind of new on their path? Maybe this is some... Somebody who has just went through a psychedelic training program, maybe they're graduating from you know, a university, having uh, received some training. What would you tell a newcomer on their path? Question everything. Be objective. Try to uh, view things from um, a factually grounded basis and, um, do, and uh, don't be too overconfident in your abilities and be humble. Anything that we should have asked you today, but we didn't? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I don't know. How much fun is MAPS going to be? <laughs> yeah. I, if uh, if we're lucky, we will run into each other uh, here within a week, probably. Yeah. So I think that you're going to be there. Uh, I'm going to get in on Sunday and uh, get an opportunity to go to a couple of workshops. And it's going to be a good time. It's going to be very interesting. I, mean, I just think when we look at this, you know, I mean... You know, I, I tell people now that I practice psychedelic law and, you know, I get lots of times, what is psychedelic law? You know, that this is something that didn't even exist, you know, a few years ago. And here we are, we're going to be meeting with, you know, 10,000 people. And, you know, for a psychedelic conference, it's just, it's mind blowing just how much things have grown and how quickly they're growing and, um, you know, just, you know, we just got all work together and really create. Uh, continue to create a strong community and, um, you know, hold each other accountable and do the right thing. And uh, I think we could build something beautiful that could really change the world. Yeah. Truer words have never been spoken. I really appreciate that. If people want to find you online or uh, reach out, what's the best way to do that? Uh, sure. Uh, website, um, 
rrushlaw.com. Also, um, you know, rrush at rrushlaw.com for an email. Um, you know, I'm always happy to speak to anybody anytime about psychedelics policy, things they're interested in exploring business wise. Great. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being on Psychedelic IQ. And uh, I will look forward to maybe meeting you in about a week. Awesome. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks, have a great day, and remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.